Hello and welcome to Giving Connect, Philanthropy Australia's latest podcast. In this series, we'll seek to explore some of the key themes that help illuminate how successful grant making works. Our host for each episode is Ben Clark, Head of Philanthropy and Social Investment at Australian Executive Trustees. Our special guest today is Seri Rankin, OAM, an independent advisor and consultant to the philanthropic and non-profit sectors. Seri has more than 15 years experience in the philanthropic sector, building on her decade as a management consultant in the professional services industry. Seri was founding director of the Melbourne Office of Social Ventures Australia, the first venture philanthropy organisation in Australia. Following that, she worked with the Social Innovation Group in the Australian Federal Government on place-based systems reform strategies and then became the founding CEO and managing director of the 1020 Foundation. Seri was awarded an OAM in 2019 in acknowledgement of her service to community organisations. Welcome, Seri. And now over to you, Ben. Thanks, Nick. Seri, great to, um, to have you join us for a bit of a yarn about transparency and philanthropy. I'm always kind of amazed about your CV and your journey in philanthropy. You've had some stimulating and fascinating roles. Can you tell us a little bit more about that journey and, and your experience across sort of both grant making, advisory, and grant seeking roles? Um, look, I've had a really interesting role in philanthropy over the years. And the more I reflect on it, the more I think I've been quite privileged because I joined philanthropy at a time when it was really shifting from more traditional models to being influenced by other sectors and skill sets, particularly business. So I came into philanthropy through the venture philanthropy lens which has always been more about bringing transparency and accountability through much um, closer engaged relationships between the investee and the investor and not just financial relationship, one that is about building skills and getting quite ingrained in the nonprofit organisation itself in line with the, the venture capital style models. I mean, it's not a perfect approach and there was a lot of learning I had in that And I took that really, I suppose, into my next really significant role in philanthropy, which was this extraordinary opportunity to wind down an old non-profit organisation, a 100-year organisation focused on vulnerable children, and transfer that into a fund which didn't have a lot of money, but was a sunset fund, $10 million over 10 years, although the 10-year timeframe was flexible depending on how quickly the money was to be invested. And it was really about running a learning organisation around the question of how does does a funder better engage in systems type change in places, in communities. So that led me personally and and the organisation on this incredible journey where we worked really closely with a number of communities and learned together about the different roles. And the particular model we were exploring was this framework of collective impact that John um, Kanya and Kramer kind of came out with it um, in the early 2000s, um, I think where we got to was probably a slightly different place than those principles. Um, but again, the underlying learning we had was very much around power dynamics. And that relates so well to this theme of accountability and transparency, invested interest, and all the things that we know actually influence ultimately the way a funder makes its decisions. So that, that in a nutshell has been my journey. And most recently, I worked for a short period of time with a Family Trust, um, founded by an entrepreneur. And that was a very fascinating process, again, because it was 
a rare opportunity where you have a sandpit of financial responses going from grant making right through to impact investing to work to solve you know some of our most complex problems and challenges in Australia and you just fine-tuned or, or, or worked with the partner on what was the right funding approach. However, I learned there, I got to see how challenging it is when on the one side you've got slightly different ways of approaching financial and commercial-driven investments versus on the other side, pure grant-making. And sometimes if you're not careful and you don't sort of have holistic principles and strategies, you're undermining one and the other or if you're not transparent and open about one and the other, it gets very complex. I think I've heard you uh, refer to transparency in the philanthropic context, that it can either be about humility or hiding. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear your thoughts around that. Uh, it can be through the lens of 1020, and I, I think that's an amazing story around converting a ineffective perpetual organisation to a sunset fund, and I guess the role that you took the, the trustees around that that shift in thinking and the shift in the dynamic, or alternatively with the Family Foundation that you've been working with most recently? When I talk about transparency, ultimately, I do think about it as not hiding or concealing anything. Why? Because actually hiding or concealing gets in the way of a relationship and a trusted relationship. And we know ultimately to solve any problem, to work effectively, you, you need these strong trusting relationships. And so that these processes of being open and honest and upfront about who you are, the way you make decisions, the way you undertake your work is really important because it implies you want to be accountable for what you do. But I actually also think it enables a learning environment. And that's in a sense what 1020 was about, was this opportunity to convene um, learning environments where we had such close relationships with the communities that we were working with in places where there were high levels of early childhood vulnerability. And they were testing new models, these communities. We started, I think, with quite a rigid approach and a much more, probably more in the line of philanthropy. You pick, you back great leaders, you you do reasonably long-term investments, so three to five years, and you, you know, you set goals, annual goals, and and you you review regularly, and you get quite engaged in supporting the initiatives um, through strategic etc. But what we found very quickly was when you're in uncharted territory and you're trying, you're supporting organisations that are trying new models, it requires philanthropy, you yourselves to have new ways of working and models. So that was very confronting initially because we got a lot of flack rightly about, well, well, the way you're funding is not going to enable this change. It doesn't allow us to innovate, to make mistakes. And we need to also understand Are you on this journey for the long journey? When you say 10 years, are you prepared to fund us for 10 years? Because that's actually what it's going to take to even just build some capacity and infrastructure to drive the work locally that we're trying to achieve. So getting back to this concept of hiding and and humility, I I guess we quickly with 1020 got to a place of recognising the complexity in philanthropy, that there's a lack of consistency in the standards around transparency and decision-making. We started out asking these communities to be transparent with us, but we weren't prepared to share that with them. Behind the scenes, we were saying, oh, gosh, our theory of change is changing all the time. What is it that we're not seeing here but that's getting in the way of our relationship? I guess where we got to very quickly, um, with the help of our partners, was looking at this whole notion of power dynamics. The power that 
particularly we have as funders, can be used in many ways. And there are consequences of it. Um, and if we don't acknowledge and recognise it up front with our partners, we're not really exploring the things that are shaping the way we're making our decisions that actually impacts how we are framing up our theory of change, where we're seeking data, where we're seeking the information that informs our decision-making as a funder. So I guess where with 1020, where we got to with this learning space, with transparency, which is, okay, we're all innovating. We're all having to learn new ways of working. And how do we together analyse our collective impact as well as then our individual roles in contributing to that impact and surface questions around the design of our current investment strategies as a philanthropic and also the design of the way the change models, if you like, and the solutions working on the ground. But it wasn't until we sort of were more transparent with each other about some of the challenges structurally that we had around our decision-making and our ability to let money go and all our policies and practices at 1020 that we got to this place with the communities where we started to change what we were doing. So you mentioned that you know, often one of the, I guess, observations and criticism of the way that grant makers and grant seekers usually work is that it's short-term funding that may be extended, but there's always this dance around the relationship. How did that safe environment create and how quickly did it take to build that, that spirit of transparency and trust? It's a really good question because in context of the 10 years, which um, isn't a long period of time, the realisation probably occurred in the first 12 months on our side because we didn't feel we had a sense about really what was going on. And in addition to that, we could see that the restrictions around some of our funding and what needed to be delivered within, you know, even the first 12 months, let alone across the three years, was hindering the community's ability to just go away and work things out and make mistakes and learn. And that was a power dynamic in and of itself too because the feedback we were getting was the funding's actually hindering our work because we need less now, more later, or more now, less later, or we actually need it little bits more rapidly. So, so it was challenging on us on every level. But what we did was at the end of the first 12 months, we got an independent evaluator to actually come in and ask a whole lot of strategic questions around the work and the way that we were working in relation to both our partners, but, but also other stakeholders in the ecosystem that we had relationships with. So in a sense, it was how does 1020 have a relationship with you, you know, whether it's a funding relationship or a learning relationship, what is this relationship like? What is good about it? What's challenging about it? And we pulled that together in a report initially for our board. It was a bit like a, a, a point in time of how are we going on what we have set our goals, impact goals to be around early childhood vulnerability and what are our learning, what are our questions that have fallen out of our first 12 months, both about the change itself and how um, the community is tracking, but also about how we're working and what we need to do. And so that then led us to realise a whole lot of things as an organisation, to think about the types of changes we wanted to make. And we also, we had convened a number of conversations or where there seemed to be a common problem. We'd pull together quickly a group, pull in an expert from somewhere and have, just have a conversation, a bit like this, but there'd be some um, learning outcomes for communities and communities could take those away. So what we did was to 
decided to formalise a, a kind of a learning environment where we all talked about what was going on and what needed to change and how 1020 would respond. Within that, the power dynamic was raised. We knew power was important, but we weren't quite sure how it played out. And so it wasn't until then we went into the second year where we had this learning group where we actually started to explore more fully, well, what's the power relationship between us and you? And how does it all then get in the way? And what that required us to do was to be much more transparent to our community partners that actually we didn't really know what we were doing either, that we needed them to help us. and. We started at the end of the second year to get a much better feel for, gosh, okay, so there needs to be some constant long-term, so 10-year core capacity funding for the backbone structures, which we were funding as part of 1020 um, in these different communities. But in addition to that, we need to set aside some money in what we call a rapid response fund so that those communities, when they hit little roadblocks, we were able to then release that quite quickly. But those sorts of things actually led over the to a place where I think if we'd had more caucus left, we would have been much more equal in the decision-making even on where funding went because we were getting to a place where our relationship with the communities and the community leaders particularly was so close that we really trusted them on what they were telling us were the best initiatives to fund or the best ways to fund. And so it became easier. We didn't need to spend as much money on our own operational evidence research. I mean, we still had to, to have that knowledge, but we were working much more closely with the partners and trusting that what they knew was going to help us. I'd love to fast forward to, I guess, the, the work you're doing now with a, with a family foundation and you know, how you picked up and applied that like you said, innovative approach to philanthropy and grant making in the context of 1020 with with the foundation, the private foundation that you're working with now. Where would you say they were on their own journey around that transparency piece? Well, I think they're, they're on the journey <laughs> and um, it's easy for someone coming in from the outside into an organisation and having a view on, on how transparent they are because I think a lot of organisations think they're being transparent. When I entered this family trust, and in particular, I was asked to come in and look at their Indigenous investment strategy, what the first thing that, that struck me was, was their unconscious bias towards a way of working that was not going to achieve what they were seeking to achieve. And, and this comes back to power dynamics. And so I bought the learning from 1020. The first thing I did was do a bit of a power mapping exercise. Who are they funding? What are they funding? And where are they getting their information from to make those funding decisions? And what it sort of translated to was that really good people, non-Indigenous people in the organisation, were making assumptions about what they thought was right based on their conversations with trusted informers who were also non-Indigenous. And so it doesn't take much to then realise that the theory of change was a non-Indigenous view on what would enable economic development for Aboriginal people in this country. And whilst there were some really good insights, it didn't come from an evidence base that was led by Aboriginal people. And that was because there was an unconscious bias that they were smart people, so they know. But they know what 
people need to, to do well, particularly to run businesses and stay in jobs. So in looking at the power dynamic there, it was a journey, if you like, of before we even got to um, reflecting on the learnings of their work to date and shifting and resetting their strategy was actually a, a bit of a cultural change within the organisation, which is what are the vested in how do we use our power and what is our relationship even as an organisation to Aboriginal community and organisations? Do we even have a relationship, trusted relationship with Aboriginal people? And, and, they, did, and they didn't. So, you know, here you have this significant opportunity of a trust that's really got great ideas and energy um, and resources to focus on Indigenous economic development, but they were funding non-Indigenous people to do economic development for Indigenous people. So the journey there was really to start to look at ultimately the vested interests, the power dynamics, and then, okay, how do we start to shift these by developing a theory of change, um, an investment approach that has greater input and sharing with Indigenous people. And that's taken them on a journey, I think, that's really exciting. And they're probably backing some of the most significant game changes in the Aboriginal economic development in the country and it's a it's a big shift and that required greater transparency and the journey they're on now and they're being challenged of course because this isn't easy as soon as you start opening yourself up and letting people know how you work and what you've got and you know at your fingertips and people start to challenge you and ask questions and I think in the First Nations space you know First Nations people have a right to ask question because they've been marginalised and treated in a way that has led them to really um, develop cynicism about the good intention of philanthropy in the work. And and, and it is because it, it is often led on assumptions and not on what's best and the content context knowledge. So look, I think you're setting new standards, which this trust is doing around it, it, the transparency and uh, and it's hard because it's a very humble organisation and its founder is very humble, but the Aboriginal and First Nations partners are now saying, well, we want to know more about how you apply these principles um, of the way you want to work with our, with your Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander partners. How that applies to your impact investing is it different with us as where you're doing grant making to how you're investing in renewables, because some of those renewables are going across traditional owners lands and we are some of those traditional owners and there are opportunities for us to get economic agency to be participating in jobs or even to have equity in these companies that you're a part of that starts to achieve in the same way what you're trying to do on your grant making side but you're seeing it as different so even that discussion can now start to be had because there's greater knowledge by the first nations partners around the work and they're doing it to help it's about it's, it's everyone working together um, and I think um, I'd credit the family trust for being open to those challenges and making those shifts and it is really hard. Thanks so much for that Siri it's been kind of illuminating around your own journey and the insights that you've gleaned along the way and the way that that's now kind of helping other foundations sort of achieve that goal of transparency and productive partnership with the granting partners. Just one last question. If you could make one change to the way grant seekers and grant makers connect, what would it be? I would re reframe the start of the relationship 
going back to what I was talking about with 1020 as a learning partnership. So I try and take the shift away from it just being something that a non-profit or a grantee is getting in terms of particularly finance funds from a grant maker. And I'd be setting the conversation up to be around a learning relationship to try and create greater equality. And in that, I think the end game and the, the shift would be greater participation of those with the lived experience in the decision-making around where funds go on the issues that matter to those with the lived experience. That was Sarah Rinkin with Ben Clark, Head of Philanthropy and Social Investment at Australian Executive Trustees. This has been the final episode in our Giving Connect series of the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening.